Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's podcast, and I'm glad to visit again with my rabbi friend. You are in Toronto, Canada, my friend. What are you doing up north? Doing some uh, meetings and and, then speaking and uh, just trying to spread good word about Israel. Well, you are one of the best at doing so, and we're glad to get to visit each week here on the Lone Star Podcast as we discuss current events and the weekly Torah portion. We'll get into the parasha in a moment, but Rabbi, we've discussed the importance on this podcast and also on my talk radio show about America opening the embassy in Jerusalem and how that is a campaign promise that the President of the United States made. He made the declaration back in November And just about two weeks ago, the embassy was opened in Jerusalem. And I want you to talk about the good news of that and also all the doomsday scenarios and all that the world's going to end if America does something right. We're not seeing that. So start with the good news first. Yeah, it's uh, definitely been a positive, good-feeling time in Israel with these developments. And you know, now that we're looking back on it, all the fears of what's going to happen in World War III if you move an embassy to Jerusalem, and I'm not saying we didn't have some security issues to deal with. We did, and with God's help, we dealt with those. But now things slowly get back to usual and just becomes a fact on the ground. This is something which you do see uh, throughout history and certainly in Israel's history. Um, a lot of fears about if Israel does this or if the United States does this, what's going to happen And yes, there are issues that do come up, but the message as we look back is just do what's right. Uh, Just do what's right. Jerusalem is our capital. Everybody knows that. So why continue with the charade of embassies in Tel Aviv? Uh, Two other countries have followed suit afterwards, and we're hopeful that many others will come uh, as people recognize that, A, there isn't going to be some horrific breakdown of everything in Israel security-wise because of it, and B, it's the right thing to do, so why not do the right thing? So we're very thankful, again, to the President and to the United States and also to God that all this has transpired and has transpired relatively peaceful, especially given what uh, many quote-unquote experts thought was going to happen. And I'll ask you one more question, a personal one. You are an Israeli politician. You served in the Israeli parliament. But you're also an American. So talk about how, as an American, this makes you feel that your home country is doing what is right in your new home country. There was always a little bit of discomfort. You know, on the one hand, the United States is Israel's greatest ally, and there's so much cooperation on the military, intelligence front, budgets, and other things that are so important. Each one helps the other. There was always this little feeling in our gut of, there's something wrong here. Why, why is the U.S. Embassy not in Jerusalem? And to see that resolved really just frees things up to be able to just 
completely embrace that alliance and that relationship, and also to know that America has done what is right. There's a good feeling knowing that I spent most of my life in the United States as an American citizen uh, to know that America, vis-a-vis Israel, is doing what's right. It's a really good feeling, and it's not just me saying it. Um, pretty much any American in Israel uh, from across the political spectrum uh, would feel that way. It was a good news story, and we appreciate the president keeping his promise, as I've said on this podcast and on my talk radio show. There's a lot of things the president does and says that I'm not a fan of, but sometimes he does things that I am a fan of, and this is one of those things. And so we do say thank you to the president for doing what other presidents said they would do but never followed through with, and that is recognizing Jerusalem as the rightful and historic capital of the Jewish people in the land of Israel, and as a result of that, moving our American embassy there. And as we mentioned a moment ago, the world is okay. There's been no tragedy as a result of that. It's okay to do what is right, even if no one else agrees with you, because it is the right thing to do. So let's move into this week's Torah portion, the parasha, the weekly Bible reading that Jews have been studying for thousands of years, and we as Christians get to join with our Jewish brothers and sisters reading the Torah portion. This week's name of the portion is Naso. It means count, and it's related to the census. We are still studying the book of Numbers. This one covers the end of chapter 4, and then chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Numbers. The longest Torah portion in all of the portions 176 verses, and Rabbi, just because I know you were about to count it, 8,632 Hebrew letters in this portion. <laughs> and, and what's quite remarkable, and we'll get to it when we talk about the end of the portion, is that there's so much repetitive words. You'll, you'll, you'll see when we talk about that story. So it's very long, but not necessarily long on content, because so much of it is, a, is an element which just repeats itself over and over again. But it is long. Uh, it is the longest, and uh, interesting to note that the longest chapter in the uh, Old uh, Testament is 176 verses, and the longest tractate in the Babylonian Talmud is 176 pages. I don't know the deep meaning of the number 176, but it's just a little trivia point that uh, your listeners might be interested in. Yeah, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. At the end of chapter 4 of this week's Torah portion in the book of Numbers, it closes up the section of the different duties of those who serve in the tabernacle and later in the temple. This talks about the Gershonites, and it talks about the Kohathites, and it talks about the Merorites, and the readers and the listeners can go into the details, but I think this continues a conversation we've had previously, and that is God has a specific plan for specific people in specific places at specific times. The corollary to that is everybody matters in the kingdom of God. That's for sure. And also, we live in a time when I, you know, there's so much about PC and equality, and I think people often mistake equality with uniformity, meaning in the Bible you see very clearly over here people have clear responsibilities, different families, children of different people, and some of them may be more elevated responsibilities, those that uh, carry the 
uh, holiest uh, elements of the tabernacle versus those who carry things that aren't as holy. And they are treated differently, and they are given preferential, preferential treatment here or there. That's not doesn't mean that we, exactly what you said, Pastor. It doesn't mean that we don't have equality in the eyes of the Lord in terms of our importance, but there are different roles and responsibilities. And everyone performing their role and responsibility on the highest level, that creates equality in terms of their eternal reward, in terms of their relationship with God. And it's a critical, critical piece to understand that we don't have to all be exactly the same. We all have to be what God wants us to be. And as long as we do that, then we are accomplishing our mission in life and we are becoming godly and connecting to Him. And the Bible is so clear about that with the different tribes and different families and different names. And everything is very orderly and very organized. And no one has to think to themselves, well, maybe I should be doing what he's doing. No, you shouldn't, because the Bible doesn't say that. And, uh, and God's Word is what determines what a person should or should not be doing. And our job is to do the best that we can with what God has designated for us. The idea of equality fits into the idea of community and fellowship, or what the New Testament calls the body of Christ. And part of that idea is it matters how we live in relationship with other people, that our righteousness can be a blessing to our neighbors, our unrighteousness, our sin can be a struggle or a curse for the people around us. And when we get to chapter five of the book of Numbers, the idea of being clean or being unclean is is brought here. And it, this is a bit of a foreign concept to a modern world. We deal with medical issues and you deal with your medicine and you move on. We're talking about 3,500 years ago, not the same medical situation, but this is a spiritual issue as well. And we get into the beginning of Numbers chapter five and it says in verse 2, The Lord said to Moses, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. Verse 3, You shall send them away, both male and female. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. And so, Rabbi, one of the struggles is if we believe in this community aspect, then we don't want people to be sent away and be all alone. Yet at the same time, you have to protect the righteousness of the family and the nation. How do you deal with that problem? So the first thing, first and foremost, and, and, and it's a very difficult shift for us to make, because we don't live in a world where we really sense God's presence. We don't even know necessarily what that means. Those of you who have driven, traveled to Israel have felt uh, what that means, because you do get that feeling when you walk in Israel, and especially in Jerusalem. But the, in order to bring the reality of God's presence to the people, we have to forego a little bit on our sensitivities, on our merciful elements, and we have to deal with the reality that God's presence is here, and that cannot tolerate impurity. Uh, we need to strive to make sure that that camp where God's presence resides is as pure as possible, even at the expense of sending people away. Now, in many cases, uh, that would inspire people, hopefully, to be pure and to remain pure. But as you pointed out by reading the verse, especially in verse Two, in some cases, it was unclean, they're impure because of a dead body. They didn't do anything wrong. They were burying someone, or they were in a place where a person passed away. And yet that impurity is a reality, and it helps us cement this idea of God's presence in our midst. We have to try to be more sensitive to that. People in their 70s, 
synagogues and churches, you know, in places where people are praying and studying, there's an element of God's presence that's stronger there than in other places. And certainly in the camp of Israel, uh, this was a place where we wanted people to connect to God on the highest of levels, and for that to happen, it had to be complete purity. And I think there's an element there actually where there is community. Meaning if I say, I'm impure, and now I need to leave the camp so that everyone else can experience God's presence on the highest of levels, that's also an element of community, where I'm sacrificing uh, myself for the temporary to in order everyone else to experience God as well. And the next section, starting in verse 5 of Numbers 5, talks about restitution or recompense or paying someone back if you have done them wrong. This is all related to the idea of being God-focused and others-focused instead of self-focused. Very much so, and especially uh, when it comes to you know, people who have, they, 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 they donate things towards the tabernacle or towards holy things, and then there's some kind of an issue with that. Uh, we, we have to understand that we need to make restitution for things that are wrong. If there are ways that we've wronged other people or God or the priest, this is something which we have to work on. And that, by the way, also leads to a, a continuation of that theme of God's presence being in the camp. Uh, this idea of repentance is one that we've talked about often, and I know that it's a very strong idea in the Christian faith as well. That's a constant daily, maybe even hourly pursuit. We in our faith, three times a day, we say, forgive us, Father, for we have sinned in our prayers. And it's something which a person has to constantly be aware of. We even have traditions of great righteous people who used to every day do an accounting and ask themselves, what did I do wrong today, in order to try to rectify that here and now, but also, quite amazingly, so that if and when the temple is, is rebuilt, they'll be able to offer the sacrifices uh, that they need to bring at that point as well. So this idea of being con- continuously aware of what we're doing and what needs to be fixed, I, I think is something which, uh, which our faiths very much share. We do believe in the call to righteousness and the call to holiness and being holy before the Lord. And if we fall into sin, if we disobey the Lord, to bring our repentance and our confession before him. And if you wrong someone, do what you can to make it right, to fix the problem that you have created. We get into the next section of chapter 5 of Numbers, and this is talking about the idea of adultery. And we often teach in our church that God hates divorce or God hates adultery, not because he hates those people, but because he values marriage so much. And the reason he values marriage so much is because it is a covenant. The second most important covenant after man to God is husband to wife. And so there's a lot of emphasis here on the dangers or the the pain of adultery as opposed to the blessing of a godly marriage. And what's fascinating is, is that you see how this story of the, uh, in Hebrew it's called the sota, it's a man who suspects his wife. It's not even a situation where something has actually definitively happened. And there's a process to be able to clarify that it didn't happen. I mean, we want to salvage the marriage. We want to salvage this spiritual relationship and bond that you're describing. So the Bible actually sets out a path for us to clarify so that husband and wife can go on together with complete trust. That's a very powerful message as well. It's not just bemoaning um, those who have situations where there is unfaithfulness, but it's also telling us about the way to rectify and clarify and build the trust 
between two uh, people who are not in a situation of trust. And that's a, a beautiful approach, I think, to such a difficult and painful uh, situation. The idea of making a covenant and keeping a vow to one another is, again, something I'm to make to my wife and she is to make to me, but also that we are to make to the Lord. And we know that the Lord doesn't break his covenant promises. We are the ones who break promises. And so the idea of marriage sanctity and marriage importance to the Lord is something that our culture could use, especially in the idea of trying to redefine what marriage is, the the fact that the marriage was an invention of God, it was his idea, and it's so sacred, we should make it more sacred in our minds. You have to always remember how God set that forth at the very, very beginning of the Bible. It's set there, it's clear, and uh, I think you are right that we do live in times where a lot of that has become blurred, and it's very important to get that clarity. Let's move to Numbers chapter 6, and it's called the Law of the Nazarite. And one commentary describes the the distinction between chapter 5 is about being cleansed, and chapter 6 talks about being consecrated. And I like those terms. Very much so. And, and, and the question that arises here with the Nazarite is, is this an ideal that a person is supposed to strive for, where they really pull themselves away from the physical world? Or is this a situation where someone has become too physical, and in order to find the right balance, they have to pull away uh, a little bit? Uh, it's a, it's a, we do have, by the way, some people today who are Nazarites. Uh, they do live in Israel. There are some famous Nazarites that have been in Israel. Uh, and it's always a discussion about, is, are we talking about ideal or not? And by the way, the consensus, at least in the Jewish faith, is that this is not the ideal. The ideal is to find that balance and that piece of being physical and spiritual together. But in this case, this person has clearly gone too far to the physical, and that's why they have to rectify themselves. And that's why at the end, they do bring an offering. They do bring a sin offering uh, for having been in this situation. But nevertheless, it is viewed as this extreme level of holiness that the person needed for this period of time. And I want our listeners to see Numbers chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. And then it goes through the list of what a person does. But this is open to men or women who are ready to make a special devotion and consecration to the Lord. Exactly. And, and what's very interesting is you study the laws themselves of the person uh, who's doing this. So first of all, it talks about abstaining from wine. And that's something which is talked about uh, on the heels of the previous uh, verse where, you know, we talked about the chapter where we talked about the, the, the woman who was in this uh, wrong situation or mistrusted. And it basically says that Wine, uh, it's a very interesting discussion about wine, and I'm very curious to hear about it in the Christian faith, because I know I've read things here and there, that wine, on the one hand, is something which we use in the temple, on the altar, it is something which we use in our meals, and we make kiddush with a special cup over, over wine, and we use it in Passover, uh, and wine is supposed to be something which enables us to be happy at times and, and joyous. Uh, but it's also something which is very dangerous. And that's why this person, uh, immediately on the heels of the previous story where there was improper behavior, there's this staying away uh, from wine as a way to be holy. So on the one hand, you have wine as something which can be a source of holiness. On the other hand, you have refraining from wine and staying away from wine to make sure that we remain sacred and holy. 
And yes, we as readers of the New Testament understand this principle. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. And so when I teach this verse, I say, Anything that controls my mind except the Spirit of God is outside the plan of God. If it's alcohol, if it is drugs, if it is lust, if it is greed, if it is anger, if it is hatred, anything that controls me by definition becomes my God. And so the prohibition is not so much about which glass you drink, but what is your master? What is your God? What controls you? And some people say, I'm going to be so careful, I will have no alcohol because it is to, to be even more careful and more righteous and to distance myself from the temptation. But the principle, we take it as wine is an example of anything that can control my mind and become my master. That's a great uh, way of looking at it, that even though the Bible focuses in on this one element uh, to apply it to anything in life, which uh, can pull you away from having control, can pull you away from your relationship and clarity uh, with God, and not to let anything overcome you other than uh, your soul and, and your spiritual side. And I think that's very much part of the message. The term Nazarite comes from the Hebrew verb nazar, which means to dedicate. And so it is a, a consecration, a dedication, a desire to be righteous. So, Rabbi, how do you distinguish a Nazarite, somebody who fits that specific criteria, from just the man or the woman who wants to be godly, who wants to live a righteous life? Well, that's what I think uh, is very important to take from this story, and that's why it's so important that this person brings a sin offering at the end, where the Bible is telling you that's not the ideal. The ideal is that you be a person who wakes up every day, yes, in a physical world, but uses that physical world to make sure that we're doing spiritual things. Uh, God did not put us in a heavenly place, Garden of Eden, without the challenges of the physical world. We're here to be able to be physical, but to harness that and to use it uh, for the spiritual. And, and the ideal would be to do it that way and find that correct balance, a delicate balance, a challenging balance, uh, but not to have to go to the extreme uh, of the Nazarite. Because every single day in our regular uh, comings and goings and eating and interactions with people, uh, we can have uh, that spirituality. You can be a person uh, who is focusing on God and the way you deal with other people with honesty and decency and compassion and in using the physical things that you have towards spiritual pursuits. Uh, we don't believe, at least in our faith, in asceticism, and it's just you know, pulling away completely uh, from the physical, but the idea is to channel the spiritual drives that we have and use the physical uh, towards those pursuits. And that's the ultimate uh, ideal. The physical life, the life on earth, is supposed to be superseded by our spiritual life. That we are spirits. We believe in the eternality of our spirits or the immortality of our spirits. That after this body dies, our spirit lives on. And so seeking spiritual righteousness and spiritual truth and spiritual blessing should come before seeking physical blessing. And this Nazarite vow is a very extreme or a very severe 
way to demonstrate that I care more about my walk with God and more about my righteousness than I do my physical pleasures. Now, I don't believe that God has called us to suffer all the time, that he's called us to be martyrs that that always are in pain because somehow that makes us more righteous. No, he is a God of blessing. He's a God of joy, but he's also a, a God who cares for us in the middle of our struggles. Sometimes those struggles are created by our own foolishness. And sometimes those struggles are created by other circumstances, but the Lord can walk with us during those times. And so the teaching about a Nazarite is specific to people who make this type of vow, but it applies to all people who want to be righteous. The principle is seek the holiness of the spiritual life more so than the earthly life. Very much so. And I think that all of this coming on the heels of the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is a very physical place. And we described all kinds of physical beauty uh, associated with it. So the Bible makes it very clear, and God makes it very clear, that we're not rejecting the physical world, but it all comes down to finding that balance uh, that you just beautifully described. Let's move into the latter part of Numbers chapter 6 to one of the most beautiful passages in all the scriptures. It's called the Aaronic Blessing. And it says in Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 22, <laughs> and it often speaks of this language, the Lord spoke to Moses, which is just so much a description of the responsibility that he had uh, as the leader of the people. Verse 23, speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, and here it is, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lifted up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the last verse, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, then I will bless them. So Rabbi, as a teacher of the Bible, but also as a husband and father, talk about the power of the Aaronic blessing. So this blessing, and I, I don't know if everybody who's listening knows this, is something which continues to this day. We have people who are children of Aaron, descendants of Aaron. They are what we call the Kohanim, the priests. And in Israel, it's actually every single day, every single morning, uh, as part of our morning prayers, uh, we as congregants in the synagogue receive these blessings. They go up towards the Holy Ark. They cover themselves with the talit, with the, with the prayer shawl, and they turn towards us with a whole special uh, way that their fingers are in different shapes to all kinds of mystical meaning, and they offer us these blessings. And it's a very powerful part of the prayer to realize that there are human beings that are standing there, but they're just conduits for God's blessing. And each one of these verses is, just, is so powerful. Uh, what I tend to think about uh, during the first one in verse 24 is about uh, good health, the Lord bless you and, and keep you. Uh, the next one is about spirituality, the Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you that we can connect spiritually. And then the last one, in terms of God turning His face towards you and giving you peace, is certainly in terms of a livelihood and in terms of peace in your relationships. Uh, every day you can think about these elements and, and these blessings. Uh, by the way, on the holidays, on, on the Feast of Tabernacles, on Sukkot, and on Passover and Pesach, there's a day where there's a big call to the priestly blessings at the Western Wall, at the Kotel. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to have hundreds and hundreds of kohanim of these priests give these blessings. Uh, so it's very much a part of our, our world today. And like I said before, the way we understand it is exactly what you said. 
the Lord said to Moses to tell Aaron, this is how you bless them, and it's not Aaron blessing them, it's not the Kohanim, the priests blessing us, they're the conduits uh, for God's blessing to come down to us. The verse starts with God's idea. He's the initiator of this. No one said, hey God, will you please bless me and, and write something really nice for me. This was the Lord's idea. So the Lord initiates it, and then only the Lord is the one who blesses. 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. 25, the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. 26, the Lord lift up his face on you and give you peace. God initiates it, and then only God can do the blessing. Exactly right. And, and, and here again, you see this partnership between God and man, where God you know, establishes a, a hierarchy, and there's people who are those conduits. Um, God initiates, man has to respond, and together that partnership brings those blessings to the camp of Israel. And, and God emphasizes, like he said in verse 27, I will bless them. No one should think that it's somehow the human being that's the source of the blessing. But as always, all blessing comes from God. Now let's move into our final chapter of this week's Torah portion, Numbers chapter 7. It's a very long chapter, has 89 verses in it, and it's talking about leaders. Leaders and their responsibilities and their offerings that they are supposed to make before the Lord. And so it starts in chapter 7, verse 2, the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's household, made an offering. These were the leaders of tribes. They were the ones who were over, over the numbered men, says verse 2. So, Rabbi, we've learned about priests and we've learned about Levites. What is the definition of leader? So every single tribe had someone that was called a nasi. Nasi today is translated as the president, and the president of Israel is the nasi. Uh, but each tribe had a tribal leader, a uh, person of great, great righteousness, which is going to create a question for us as we move onward, and we get to the sin of the spies, where there were great leaders uh, involved there as well. But here, each one of them was to offer a dedication uh, to the tabernacle as they consecrate and get things all ready to go. And what's unbelievable is, and anybody who reads chapter 7 will see this, that each one of them offered the exact same thing. Over and over again, we go tribe after tribe, and these Nisi'im, these leaders, these princes of the tribes, offer the same thing. And the commentaries ask, why doesn't the Bible just say, here are the 12 men, and here's what they offered, and do it in one, you know, just a few verses. And our commentaries, our tradition actually teaches us that they did not speak to one another about what their offerings were going to be. And each one brought these offerings on their own. And it ended up being the exact same thing, that there's somehow deeper meaning in every single element of these offerings. And, you know, people would say magically or coincidentally, but we would say that there's some deep spiritual things that are happening over here, that each one brought the same thing. And the Bible, the Torah, wants to emphasize that by going through each one over and over again. You mentioned the word nasi, which is our translation for the word leader. One definition of nasi is the elevated one, the one who has been lifted up into a position of leadership. And as you rightly describe, looking at the verses in chapter 7, all the <clears throat> 12 tribal leaders brought identical gifts, and they brought them on consecutive days. So you had 12 leaders, one per day, so 12 consecutive days, and 
the order of their coming with their gifts to the Lord corresponds exactly with the arrangement of the tribes around the tabernacle, which we studied in last week's Torah portion, that on the north and the south and the east and the west, there were specific places where four on four sides, three tribes on each side, the tribes were given a place to camp. And so this is another example of the orderliness of God's worship that their offerings came in the order that their camp arrangement was set up. Exactly. You see the orderliness, and, and, and this relates, obviously, symbolically to the world as well, where everything has such order and clarity. Uh, you look at the, the heavens, and you see the planets and the stars and how everything just works. Uh, that's what happens in God's plan, and that this is all our physical representation of what's happening in a much broader sense. So we come to the very last verse of the very long Torah portion, Numbers chapter 7, verse 89. After all of these 12 leaders bring all of their offerings and the descriptions of the animals and the gold and the silver and all the things that are there, you get to a very interesting verse, 789. Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, or in Hebrew, Mishkan, to speak with him, to speak with God, Moses heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, the angels. So he, the Lord, spoke to him. What an amazing scene with, and it, Rabbi, I find it kind of humorous. We get all the language, all the ink about all the different offerings over and over again, and then we have yeah, Moses went into the tabernacle and God talked to him, and we don't get much description about it. <laughs> That's right. You have the whole big buildup, and then it's sort of left to our imagination. And I wonder if you know, part of the message there is that we can't even appreciate what that means. We cannot even appreciate what that communication, what that clarity is like. And we just have to almost be in awe of Moses and the fact that he was able to reach that level and sort of step back and recognize that it's not something which everyone uh, can experience, but at the same time to recognize that, yes, God does communicate with man and that uh, we have to be aware of that uh, dynamic of the relationship as well. We have come to the end of the longest Torah portion in all of the Bible readings each week, and we've talked about the need to be cleansed, the need to be forgiven of our sin. We've talked about the value of marriage, that God values faithfulness and fidelity in marriage. We talked about the law of the Nazarite, a person who makes a special vow to be holy before the Lord. We talked about the ironic blessing and something as beautiful as it is to say that the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. And then the role of leaders to set the example of making a vow, making an offering before the Lord, keeping your promises and showing as a role model what it means to honor God. And we end up with this very brief verse. Moses went into the tabernacle and God talked to him. Wow, what a beautiful privilege it is to get to enter into the Lord's presence. And I believe the Lord still speaks to us. That's what prayer is all about. Very much. And, that, and that's what we have to remember. We cannot look at the Bible on these stories and say, oh, that's something uh, from the past. There is that continuous relationship, that continuous communication, and what we have to do is have our spiritual antennas in tune to the right station uh, to be able to hear it and to be able to notice it, and that really does happen through prayer, it happens through study, it happens through uh, meditation, and it's something which anybody can connect to. We have to t- tune out 
all the impurities that are in our lives which block us uh, from experiencing it. But yes, very much we have to remember that we have that capacity today as well. Amen, amen. Rabbi, always great to study the Word of God with you. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom to you and all the listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.